But I want to thank Parker for the opportunity to do this. Um, just real quick, are you recording it? Oh, never mind. <laughs> um, so Parker had reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to teach this morning. And uh, by the way, uh, I have a little training now in Google Chrome. So this PowerPoint slide is in Google uh, Docs. But because of that, I'm also going to what's called screencastify it. That just means whatever you see on the screen, whatever I point to, whatever I click on, is also going to be recorded as a video. So in addition to the uh, audio, there will be audio and a video recording that I could share with you guys if the handout wasn't enough. So you have the handout in front of you, but I had it print um, to save ink and it left out the title, because the title was printed in white. So if you guys want to jot that in there right now, then I'll at least know that you're awake and you've at least drawn out a pencil for at least some intention. Uh, ecclesiology and counseling and discipleship. So I was, I was honored when Parker gave me the um, opportunity to teach like this. I, if, if you don't know, I'm a certified counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, by God's grace alone, he's helped me through that, and I'm honored to serve in that way. And so he asked me if I would come up and teach about something related to counseling, and the sky's the limit. Um, yeah, any topic could have come to mind. Why counsel? How counsel? Specific counseling issues. And uh, I just thought, well, lately we've been looking at marks of a healthy church in Sunday school. And so going along with that, although I haven't been here for all of them, sometimes I've, I've either been away or I've been with the children, I thought what I would do is take a look at ecclesiology with you, uh, study of the church, what the scriptures have to say about the church, and how that relates to counseling and discipleship. So that's our title. Everybody good there? Okay. Let me hit record here. Okay, so that's recording. Okay, that little thing on top will go away in a moment. So you have all the slides in front of you. This isn't meant to be an exposition where take a chunk of scripture and go through it in a very close, intricate, detailed, hermeneutic style. This is, for me, just meant to allow... Um, just to give an overview. So here's the two questions I hope to address before uh, we finish up our time today. And these are questions that come directly from the, the test that I took for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. I'll have to admit from the outset that if you guys have questions, uh, it's probably best you might need to write them down, uh, wait until you see Pastor Parker or Pastor Joey, because I'm by no means an expert on the ecclesio ecclesiology studies. However, um, these questions, among others, I have answered and were deemed acceptable. So based on that, I'm, I'm basically going to give you a run-through through these PowerPoint slides and just kind of moving quickly about why um, it's important that we study what the church has to say through the scriptures about counseling and about discipleship. So the first question that we'll take a close look at would be, what role... 
I don't know how to get rid of that bottom thing. I don't want to stop sharing. All right, thank you. What role does the church play in the believer's life and the counseling process? We're going to take a look at it in a little bit of an individual uh, specific focus. And then the second question would be, what authority, if any, does the church have over individuals and the counseling process? So some of these things may sound familiar or even redundant of what you may have heard uh, as, as we looked at marks of a healthy church. It's, it's intended to be that way, but that's why I want to fly through quickly and then you know, just eventually just get to some of the more specific aspects that relate to counseling and discipleship. So in answering this first question, uh, in looking at my answer, I broke it down into five kind of sub-points, and I thought to answer what role does the church play, let's first look at what's the purpose of the church, and then what does Christ even collect a body of believers for? What, what is the purpose of not even being raptured upon salvation? Why are we still here? What are we to do? What, what is our purpose as Bible-believing, Christ-loving, blood-bought, born-again Christians. And then God-ordained leadership. How does the leadership play its role in the believer's life as well as the counseling process? And then what's God's expectation for the role of the church? And then finally, summarizing in what is the role of the church. Okay, so let's first look at that first sub-point. We're still under the question, what role does the church play in the believer's life in the counseling process? And so, what's the purpose of the church? Well, you have it in front of you, but you can just go ahead and tell me. Thank you, Paul. If you guys are going to act like my period one freshman, then this is going to be a tough morning. Um, glorify God. Ephesians 3.21. What's the purpose of the church? to glorify God, to resemble Him, to speak like Him, to act like Him, to honor Him in everything that we say, do, think. Well, how? Well, this is a quick run-through of Scriptures. You can make mark of any that you see that jump out at you and by all means study them later. But like I said, this isn't, this isn't an exposition. I'm not going to take just a chunk and go through it. We're going to fly through a lot of the Scriptures and don't take my word for it. Take your Bible, look them up for yourself later, and see what these have to say. But how do we glorify God as, as a church? By the building, um, the church builds itself up in faith through instruction of the Word, through our fellowship, by keeping the ordinances, by advancing the communication of the gospel, by, by taking seriously the, the role of evangelism and discipleship even to the remotest parts of the earth. So what does Christ raise us up for? No trick again. His glory. What is the whole purpose of being saved? Is it for us? I mean, we certainly receive rewards and benefits and blessings, but it's all about Him. It's all about him and magnifying him and making him more famous, making him more treasured, making him people's first love. Remember the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The greatest thing that we can do is bring glory to his name. Well, how? Well, Ephesians 2.10, uh, counselors I've talked to say that oftentimes this is their favorite verse to reflect on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. The emphasis there is mine, of course. Um, that wouldn't be underlined or bolded in your scriptures, in your Bible. Four good works. I always like to remind 
my works, salvation, religious friends. Not by good works, for good works. Big difference there. So he's raising us, the purpose there, if we're going to kind of look back and summarize, he's raising us up to glorify him through the building each other up through faith, through the instruction of the word, through our fellowship that we share, by keeping the ordinances, by advancing the communication of the glorious truth of the gospel, and that's all for good works. And now in this, in, in the role that the church plays is, as we've been looking at in Marks of a Healthy Church lately, is there's also God-ordained leadership. Uh, may it never be that we would... I was talking to somebody who I know in Texas who's in the process of trying to get certified as a biblical counselor, and his church doesn't quite uphold um, to a sola scriptura biblical counseling idea. And I told him, I said, praise God that you're halfway through your course, but you've got to get your elders on board. You've got to get your leadership on board. Because the intention is not that you understand biblical counseling, but your pastors don't. And then you're off on your own counseling, because that's not how it's intended. Pastor Parker, Pastor Joey could tell you that, uh, and even... Most of the people I counsel these days are from other churches. People find me through a website and they meet with me. And I have open communication with their elders. I let them know that. Say, I'm serving in a pastoral ministry type of way, but I am not your elder. I I am not the one responsible for shepherding you. Your elders are, and they need to know. So we, we have the elders in place for that, but we also have them, well, again, for, what for? for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, from Ephesians 4. 1 Peter 5, 2. What's the purpose of having the elders? To exercise oversight uh, voluntarily with eagerness. Okay. So in looking at what is the role that the church plays in the believer's life in the counseling process, well, what's God's expectation? that we would first and foremost obey our leaders and submit to them for they are the ones uh, underneath the headship of Christ over us. And, and we're going to look at that more in the second question, if that's not clear right now. At, right now we're finishing up the first question. So more of Hebrews thirteen seventeen is going to come out in a, in a minute. So let me just read the whole text since we'll visit the second half of that verse in a few. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, I'm just noticing now that I forgot to go. Do you guys have like little stars highlighted on the top of some of your slides? That wasn't supposed to come through your copy. That was supposed to come through mine because it's a highlighter. But it did. And that was supposed to remind me to mention a couple things. Um, so let me go back a few. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. We're fine. We're fine. So I wanted to read this excerpt that I had written a little while back to you before I moved on from this slide, so forgive me for needing to go back. Believers must place themselves under the leadership of the godly men that Christ has sovereignly appointed so that they can be shepherded intimately and personally. 
This isn't meant to be intrusion into one's life, as some might seem. This is God's design for keeping the body blameless and united. As we have fingers, and um, they can reach out to the parts of our body to apply ointments or bandages or medication into our mouth or whatever the case may be, so is it that God has appointed uh, parts of his believing church that they may be able to apply in a separate way. If my foot is keeping me from walking in that direction, then it is expected by common sense that my hands might come along as part of my body and address that so that I can move forward. And, and that's, that's what we see here as we picture the leadership and how God has ordained that, is that we have parts of the body that are responsible for taking care of others. Now, getting back to the slide we were on. Does that mean that we are to just leave it all to the elders? Well, you probably assume I'm going to say no to that, and that's where we're headed with this. So, when, so we first want to, in kind of reviewing here, take a look at the idea that we have, the, again, a summary, the purpose, glorify God. How? Through the fellowship, through, through keeping the ordinances, uh, through the instruction of the word, building each other up as, as a body helps itself out in movement and moving forward by advancing the communication of the gospel, submitting to our elders, trusting in their leadership, and ultimately, what is the role of the church as a whole, not just the elders, but all of us as believers. Uh, if this is small for you to read, remember, I work with high school kids. They read fonts on their phones that are small enough to make us think it's gibberish, but uh, I'll read this for you. It's been said that counseling is about the church, not the church about counseling. Before I move on, let me explain. The next sentence pretty much does, but this statement has many applications, but the essence is that churches must not exercise counsel for the building up of a counseling business or reputation. So what does that mean? We are interested in the glory of God when we disciple and when we counsel. We are interested in the healthiness of the church. We are interested in in the love for Christ being poured out through each of us. We're not interested in the reputation of uh, nearly as much. We're not interested even in the individual soul. Do I care about that individual that I meet with and help? Absolutely. But I love God even more than that person, and that causes the overflow for me to help that person out. Picking up on the word neither, third sentence. Neither should the focus be solely on the individual person's improvement. Rather, counseling's sole purpose should be to build up the church and bring glory to Christ. Discipleship is somewhat different. Discipleship is a command God has given to all believers to raise one another up. This should happen whether there are problems or not. Certainly, counseling corrects problems through discipleship, but discipleship ought to build up godliness in people so that counseling is prevented. Discipleship is preventative counseling, and counseling is corrective discipleship. But all of it is applied sanctification to make the body of Christ more like him. There's a lot said in there. Are there any questions about that? Okay. If you're like me, I wrote this, and yet I'm reading it, and I have questions. And you might be thinking, why the importance on stressing that there's a a slight difference between discipleship and counseling, and yet at the same time, there is no difference? 
Well, when someone comes to you and they have a problem, and whether you are a certified counselor or not, that's going to happen. In your life, somebody's going to come to you with a need of some sort, with a trouble of some sort, and you, as a caring person, if they're not a believer, of course, want to evangelize them. If they are a believer, you want to lead them through God's truth and help that they be sanctified by that truth. Um, as Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. So when that person comes to you, it's kind of, in my mind, like, like the doctor who now has to perform surgery. And, and the doctor is happy to perform surgery and wants to because he wants to care for the person. But what are most doctors already trying to do? They're trying to prevent the illness. They're trying to prevent the disease. And so if we are active as a body in discipleship, if each of us are, are stirring up one another to love and good deeds, then we would hope that some of the, the hard, difficult, rock-bottom counseling issues that we come to could be prevented. And so I think that that's exciting and encouraging. I think that that gives us great hope to want to get involved in one another's lives, which we'll look at in a minute, because it helps us remember that our role can be even greater than um, the person who's going to sit down and deal with them when they're really at a loss. So the conclusion. Again, this is a fly-through of some of these scriptures, but if you would, turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5, just because that allows us to take a, a, a little bit of a, a summarized look. <clears throat> so to summarize the question, what role does the church play in the believer's life and the counseling process? Well, how can believers be united unless they fellowship and worship together often? That's, that's not rhetorical. You can answer that. How can believers be united unless they fellowship and worship together often? Is there, is there no way? We can't think of any way that they could. So, so there is a means in which one-on-one -on -one we can be there for each other, home church, something like that. Does that include the elder process, say, home church situation? Not going to have a plurality of elders in your home. So I think there could be some argument from some people. How can believers be united? Well, they could, okay. But what I'm hearing from you guys would be what I would argue is we can't be united unless we fellowship and worship together often. We need that. We are constantly distracted and tempted by the ways of this world. And our time together is not meant just for refreshment, but also for building up. So how can God-ordained elders and leaders make the bride of Christ accountable if church membership, which I know has been addressed recently, discipleship, and even discipline are ignored? Well, that can't happen. If elders and leaders aren't involved in the spiritual process of people's lives, and if people aren't submitting themselves to church membership, and if church discipline, according to what Matthew 18 would lay out, isn't happening anywhere, then, again, we're going to struggle in this process. So the church exists for the very purpose of commanding submission and uniformity to the Lord through the close relationships with our church leaders, and one another. 
So Leviticus 20, uh, 26, God commands holiness, you know, be holy as I am holy. 1 Corinthians 1.10, be made complete in the same mind. Now we know becoming perfectly holy is an impossibility, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, this needs to be our desire and this needs to be our, our love and our, our concern, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. So I trust you all turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 by now. And let's look together at this. So verses, the, the end of verse 10, um, that we may live together with him. So this is answering, what role does it play? And then ver, into verse 11, why? To encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And we move to verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, and try to pick out these words, appreciate and esteem, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And lastly, take a look at verse 14, and just maybe some of you could answer me. Who is this verse directed towards? Brethren, so this is not a pastoral-only requirement, and I'm going to lay this out even a little bit more in the next few slides. This is to every believer. Every believer is commanded. This is a present imperative. This is a command. This is a continuing, ongoing situation here. You are to admonish people when they are unruly. You are to encourage the faint-hearted. You are to help the weak. You are to be patient with everybody. This is a huge counseling verse, um, but this plays out in discipleship. Someone comes to you and admits a sin, lovingly admonish them. Someone is struggling and they are weak, lovingly encourage them. Someone is just faint-hearted or downtrodden, help them. So before I move on, any questions about number one? Right, absolutely. So the question, if, if it couldn't be heard, was about not to work independently. Now, there are, um, quote-unquote, Christian counseling programs that you could go through out there to become trained and equipped, um, and they, they wouldn't stress that. But as we look at the scriptures and we look at the study of ecclesiology, we see that that was never God's intention. It is to be under headship and, and under authority, and we're, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But good point. And I would stress for those of you that don't know that we have a Tuesday night class that Parker's leading right now that is aimed at training people. And the sole intention there is not to try to make certified counselors. I'll be honest with you guys. I could care less about being a certified counselor. I only pursued the certification because I know it meant something to the world. So now, 
people search on the internet, they find my name, and now they know about Newtown Bible Church. Well, people aren't attending here, but people from other churches, and some of them from churches, that if you looked at their statement of faith, you looked at their website or listened to their sermons, you'd be thankful that they're coming to hear theological truth and how to apply that. Um, but certification or no certification, this is something that we all need to take seriously and learn and be trained. So just as a side note, remember that there's still a Tuesday night class that runs. Okay, so if there's no other questions, we'll look at our, our second topic here. What authority, if any, does the church have over individuals and the counseling process? So some of this might seem a little redundant of church discipline, and um, therefore I'm, I'm not going to stress that as much, but I am just going to lay out here, and this is done intentionally, Christ, then leaders, then believers. Okay, we're going to look at each of them. There's no accident in how I set those up. So Christ's role of authority. Um, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 18. We could look at so many other passages, but these are just a few that summarize. All things in subjection under his feet. Head over all things to the church. Him who is the head. He is also head of the body, the church. Again, just a sampling. But obviously, Christ is the authority. He is the ultimate authority. And there is no authority given except from him. So to submit to our, to our leaders, to obey our leaders, is to also submit to the authority that Christ has appointed. Because God appoints teachers and leaders. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. So this slide is not exhaustive. Um, this is just my quick, easy, summarized perception of, of different types of discipleship that occur. Um, formative versus corrective is one way that you could look at it. Others might define it differently. So examples of formative, preaching, teaching, leading. As a counselor, um, I'm, not up, I'm not to be up there preaching the word of God. I, I am not a pastor. I do not serve in that way. God has not placed me in that role. There is a limitation that I have there. There is a role that I don't step outside of. Can I be up here speaking about counseling? Well, God has put me in a counseling role, yes. So can you teach? We know that there are limitations. We know that this gets into some of the gender roles among how to serve within the church. Are women to teach in some ways? Yes. Um, are they to usurp authority? over the eldership and leadership of the church? No. We know that, uh, correct me, 2 Timothy? 1 Timothy 2? 1? Thanks, Mike. So I got you. 1 Timothy 3? Okay. But we're all called to lead. So there is a sense where there are discipleship roles that we need to recognize that, that are hands off for us. Formative counseling comes through the preaching of the word. I don't do that. We don't do that. We're not elders. Can we teach? Depends on the setting. Depends on the audience. But can we all lead? We're all called to lead. If we are an immature Christian, well, we're not called to lead, but we're called to follow someone who leads. Corrective. Um, rebuke. Admonish. Excommunicate. Are we called to rebuke? Are we called to admonish? Are we in this room, as, as all of us right now are non-elders, are we called to excommunicate? No. So, 
we'll go through that in another slide or two, and I don't know if it came out in the copy of yours, because some of it were yellow lettering, that may not show up very well. Um, but what's the leader's role? Well, First Peter 5.2, to shepherd the flock, to exercise oversight. We looked at that scripture earlier. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the word in season and out of season. And while elders would be responsible for being involved in any of the processes of the uh, discipline, church discipline roles laid out in Matthew 18, as you all just shook your heads no at me, we all recognize that the only active ones in the serious stages, in other words, excommunication of um, biblical counts, of biblical discipline or excommunication would be the leaders. So we have to recognize there that leaders have different roles. So here's the summary of that. Parker, doesn't, Parker and Joey don't get off the hook. <laughs> They're not excused from anything. What do you guys got to do? Everything. So great, nothing for us to do, right? We're off the hook? No. These next two slides can overwhelm you. They, they, they should certainly humble you. They humble me. I had to put them onto two slides just because I didn't want to make the font teeny tiny. Um, guys, let me just say that I would really encourage you to spend some time opening your Bible when you have some quiet time, going through these, coming back to this. Just simply, I think it's good you read it from your Bible. But then I think you come back to this in its short and condensed version and be honest with yourself of where you could be better. I can be better at so many of these. In fact, I ask that you would pray for me as I would seek to be better at so many of these. But remember that none of these is an option. None of these is, hey, if you feel like it, maybe go do this. These are all commands from the Lord. So, non-elders of the church are not to do formative discipline. That means us, non-elders, are not to do formative discipline that comes through the preaching and teaching from the pulpit or the serious matters of church discipline as laid out in Matthew 18, but we are to do formative discipleship. If you didn't hear that there, I first said formative discipline. There's parts we don't do. But formative discipleship, yes, and that we lead another in private discipleship, but that still needs to be overseen and trained by the elders. That's why I mentioned Parker running the, the uh, class on Tuesday night. We're, we're receiving training. Um, I meet with people, and I apply the scriptures to their life, and I give summary reports. I don't think I have to, but I do it because I, I believe that I should. As a Christian, I give the reports uh, or summaries to Parker and Joey and ask for their leadership. Non-elders, again us, also do not do corrective dis uh, discipline in the form of excommunication. However, we non-elders are involved in the disciple process through the earlier stages of Matthew 18, such as rebuke, admonish, instruct. Now before I, I, I fly through, just to give you a very humbling uh, glance at what we ought to be doing compared to probably what we do, let me just tear through these. Bear burdens with one another. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Serve one another. Be patient with one another. Be truthful with one another. Be kind with one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stimulate one another. Confess sins to one another. Pray with one another. Be hospitable to one another. 
I'm going to need like nine more cups of that little shot of water you just gave me. That was a mouthful. Um, that's a fly-through. No, I'm good, Ray. I was joking. <laughs> uh, that's a fly-through. We need to spend time looking at this and understanding that we do have a role, whether we are elder or not, whether we are counselor or not. Did this show up on your copies, the yellow? You can slightly make it out. All right. So, mentioned Parker and Joey and men like them that God has appointed are not off the hook from anything. But we're not completely off the hook. We are to teach. Why do I have two asterisks next to that? Well, because under the context of our God-given roles and audience, um, I am not an elder. I, I am not to preach and teach from the pulpit. Uh, I don't know that I would be up here to teach anything other than something related to counseling. By God's grace alone, I have demonstrated uh, that he has blessed me with the ability to counsel people, although I know I could be so much better. So can I be up here count and teaching in this context? The audience is appropriate. The topic is appropriate. Can women be teaching in Sunday school for children? Absolutely. Um, women are instructed to teach up their children. Can women come alongside other women? Absolutely. We're instructed to. Can, can women teach uh, and usurp authority or teach in the pulpit? No. God has commanded it not be so. So we have to understand that with the teaching one, we're all commanded to that, but, but the context and the audience is, is, is where you know, we ask our leadership and our pastors and our elders. We are all called to admonish, as we said. We are all called to rebuke. We are all called to lead, and all of that is to be done in love. We are not called to preach or excommunicate, and of course, that's not an exhaustive list. Okay. So what does this all mean? <clears throat> well, again, if that's small for you, I'll read it, and I'll just stop wherever we need to, but you can follow along with me. When the church encourages, serves, and teaches one another, the need for discipline becomes prevented. However, discipline's not meant to get rid of people. You've heard this before. Church discipline in itself is about reconciliation. That is why there are so many steps laid out in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 20. As J. Adams writes, quote, every believer in Jesus Christ has the right to be disciplined, end quote. It's from a theology of Christian counseling, page 288. I believe that's a book for our Tuesday night class. Nobody, including leaders, should be defensive over being confronted over their sins since we're all sinners. The purpose for the church discipline procedure is to promote one-on-one -on -one interaction of brotherly love. It's in the case of arrogance, pride, and unteachable spirits that we see the process go to needing to bring along two or three witnesses or, or further going and telling it to the church and then ultimately excommunication. All of this, what does all this mean? All of this is to involve the whole church in a biblical process of helping people through sin. It's so important that the church be pure, that God has given so many steps just in case it doesn't affect the person the first or the second time. This is gracious. It's not a one strike and you're out. However harsh it may seem to some, 
this authority the Lord has given to the church is to disciple one another for the glory of the Lord and the purity of his church. So again, that comes back to the very first slide. Why does God save people? For his glory. Why are we not raptured immediately upon salvation to be here and build one another up for his glory? And so finally, the gospel. As I was talking to Parker, I was saying, you know, I'd really love to find a way to try to fit into this, how the attributes of God are so essential in coming alongside somebody and to try to fulfill one of those one another's. And then I rehearsed this the other night in our kitchen after the kids fell asleep, and I was like, I'm not going to have time for that. Um, But we can at least address the gospel because that's where all this flows from. So Romans 1.16 power of God for salvation for all who will believe. This all flows from the gospel. The gospel, it's been well said, is not just for unbelievers to be saved, but the very means by which believers are sanctified. I was talking with Ray last night. Um, It was a nice Christmas party the Browns put on. Uh, but, But thankfully, among all the sugary treats and all the presents and all the excitement, there was fellowship. There was talking about important matters, and um, we were talking about, yeah, it can be intimidating when someone comes to you with a problem that you're not really that up-to-date on, or, you know, several people come to you at once, and it seems like, boy, I don't know that I can address all these issues. I'm not a professional, but do we know the gospel? If we know the gospel, then we can communicate the power of God, And it's not just for sinners to be saved. Of course, it is that. That's what Romans 1.16 tells us. But it's the very means by which we become sanctified. As Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. So counseling discipleship should always point to the gospel. And I say this because I wouldn't want to lay out for you, hey, you have a role to play, and this is a command, and you need to be doing this. You need to be looking out for the people around you and seeing if they are hurting. You need to be asking people, how can I pray for you? You need to be uh, checking in and admitting your own sins to others so that they may come alongside you when you are weak or immature. And if you don't know what to do, if I just stopped there and was like, all right, thanks for listening, you might be troubled. Can we become better trained? Of course we can. But if we have the gospel, if we can reflect on the attributes of God through the gospel, that God is creator, that God is loving and kind, that he is omniscient, that he knows everything, that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at all times, that he is omnipotent, that he is completely powerful to do and say whatever he uh, he commands to be done would be done, then then we recognize also that God is holy and that he is righteous and that he is just, that we are sinners, that we are condemned against him. There is no way that we can make things right for sinning against an infinite God that requires infinite punishment. But thanks be to God that through his love and through his grace— he sent his son, born to be um, born of a virgin. He wouldn't have the inherited sin nature that we have, that he would be living a perfect life, tempted in all ways as we were, yet never sinned once, so that he could be the perfect life, the, be the perfect substitute that we cannot be, that at the cross there could be the imputation, the sanctification, the, the, the process of, 
of Christ's righteousness accredited to your sinful soul, your sinful account, fully satisfied, the wrath of God on the cross, and that through the triumphant resurrection, there can be hope that should we repent, should we believe in this and trust alone in this, that we would be free from the hell that we deserve, that Christ alone completed it all, that God set it up for us in love and grace. What power that has. I might not be able to tell somebody about their drinking problem in every detail. I might not be there. I might not be able to tell somebody everything that I should think about if they're struggling in in looking for work or they're having trouble with meeting their finances. But I can tell them that God is good because the gospel is good. And they can find hope in that. So, beloved, if that's all I can encourage you to do when someone comes to you to remember, how do you do some of those one another's? You point them to Christ. You tell them the gospel, even if they know it. Uh, Parker, you read Bob Somerville's book? Okay, I passed you. You were okay. Uh, Bob Somerville just wrote a wonderful book. Uh, I didn't even know who he was. I was eating an In-N-Out burger next to him out at the conference. I was, you know, thought he was another professor. I had no idea he was a fellow on the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and he was professor for these guys, and he just wrote this book and. And uh, if you get a chance to check out any of the sessions from the uh, ACBC conference, he, uh, he basically exposited a whole chapter of Philippians, Philippians 4, a whole book in about 45 minutes. The poor uh, sign language guy thought his arms were going to fall off. What am I getting at? All he's doing in his, after his 38 years, something beyond that, years of counseling, when he became depressed, all he needed was people to remind him of the, of the gospel. He knew the gospel. He's a professor of biblical counseling. He's a fellow of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And he stresses in his book time and time again, I needed to keep hearing the truth of God. So, in our closing minutes, personal reflection for you. Just think these. If you need to, write them down next to the questions right there on your handout. Are you sensitive to sin? Does your sin grieve you? Here's a really tough question, this second one. Are you thankful when your sins are pointed out? Boy, guys, pray for me on this. Do you rejoice? Do you look at someone with sincerity and say thank you when they point out your sin? Well, that's what we're called to do for one another. Now, we're called to do it in a loving way, with gentleness, right? With, with grace, as if our, our speech were seasoned with salt. But suppose an unbeliever, in an angry way, points out your sin. Aren't we to still be thankful? Do we quickly confess, seek forgiveness, and commit to put righteousness on in place of our sin? And lastly, where are you in your walk? Know that there is a role for you whether you are a mature Christian or you are an immature Christian. If you are a mature Christian, you feel you've got a handle on the gospel. You're not perfect, none of us are perfect, but you feel that you have um, a handle on the gospel and how to communicate that in a loving way. Use what you've been blessed with to build up others. Look around, ask people, how can I be praying for you? Be praying for them. Come alongside them and ask, I'm reading this great book, would you read this book with me? I got a second copy. If you are an immature Christian, you are struggling to get out of a sin issue, a rut, um, 
but your desire is there. And, and, and make no mistake, the difference between the person not being a true believer and the immature person, the immature person has the desire to be sanctified. The uh, unbeliever does not. Then if you are an immature Christian, then seek out fellowship. Because you are commanded in that also. Okay? To find people around you that can stir you up, that can be kind to you, that can be involved in your lives and help point you to the cross. And lastly, are you a true believer? If you're not, then you need to spend more time meditating and dwelling on this. So, right on time. And I'll stop my recording. Okay. Does anybody have any questions? So I've learned in years of teaching, if you pause long enough, somebody will finally say something. There is no guarantee that when someone comes to you for help and you give them theological truth, there's no guarantee that they want to come back and keep hearing it. That's where we pray that the Spirit would lead them. People could come to you because you offer free counseling and they've tried everything else and they're not a believer. Likely they're not going to want to stick around on their own. We pray that the Spirit of God would be there to move them and to open their eyes to that truth. Um, yeah, and there's a lot more that can be said about that. But a very good question. Her question was about um, somebody comes to you for help and they have a weak theological background because their church doesn't preach sound doctrine. I'm going to title this um, and then I'll probably upload it to my... Well, right now it's set to my teacher account. I'll probably set that to my personal account. Uh, load it onto YouTube if anybody wants to hear it with the slides. It should be able to work, and you can let me know about that. Uh, but they, they recorded it as well, I believe. Any other questions before I step down from here? Okay. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, there is nothing greater than giving you glory. And the sad reality is we fail at this so much. We fail at this daily. We are not great representatives of you. We do not put you on display as we ought to. Sadly, we do not even care for parts of your body as we should. We have, we have fingers that are ignoring the pains in the elbow. We have wounded knees that are being dragged along without being patiently cared for. And Lord, I pray that you would stir us all up to think about this seriously and to realize that to not do these things that you've made so clear in your word would be to defy you, to rebel against you. May it be, Lord, that we would not only submit to our leaders and elders for this and receive training to please you, but that we would also do it with great joy of our own hearts and souls so that we could fulfill your requirement to make the bride of Christ more beautiful, more blameless, that we would have an impact on this unbelieving world. And pray that would be our case. In Jesus' name, amen.